Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you for being here this morning for what I think is going to be a really fantastic conversation on a very underexplored and I think increasingly important uh, subject. I think we've got, I, I couldn't think of two better people to be here to discuss this uh, with you today. Um, to my left, uh, immediate left, is uh, Jesse Morton, um, co founder of Parallel Networks, a consultancy uh, with a focus on countering extremism. Beforehand, he was a fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism and the research coordinator of the Institute for Strategic Dialogues Against Violent Extremism Network in North America. Prior to all that, uh, Morton was a co-founder and chief propagandist of Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based group active in the 2000s, which helped to insert the narrative of Al-Qaeda and Salafi jihadism into the American ambit. Uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in human services and a master's in international relations from Columbia University, has lectured in Saudi Arabia and Morocco, and is widely read in classical Islamic theology and jurisprudence. Next to him is Mitch Silber, also a co-founder of Parallel Networks and also the founding partner of The Guardian Group, an intelligence and security consulting firm. Prior to his work in the private sector, Mr. Silber served as director of intelligence an analysis at the NYPD was responsible for building out and managing the analytic and cyber units. He supervised the research, collection, and intelligence for the intelligence division's entire portfolio of ongoing terrorism-related investigations. He's also the author of the book, The Al-Qaeda Factor, Plots Against the West, and is a visiting lecturer at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. He received his BA from the University of Pennsylvania, an MA in International Relations from Columbia University. Um, they're also both co-authors of a new publication. You may have seen some of the copies outside. If you, if you haven't got a copy yet, you certainly should. Uh, that's just been released on how to rehabilitate and reintegrate those convicted of terrorism offences uh, who have recently been freed back into society. Um, so we're going to be discussing that. We're going to be discussing uh, Jesse and Mitch's very unique stories because I feel like even that introduction doesn't quite do it a uh, service. My name is Robin Simcox. I'm the Margaret Thatcher Fellow here at Heritage, and I'm going to be moderating the conversation. Uh, we'll probably have Jesse and Mitch speak for around 30, 40 minutes, and then we'll get into a Q&A where I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, interesting discussion to be had. So without any further ado, I shall pass it over initially to Jesse. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Um, so it's an honor to be here uh, and an honor to launch our paper here when terrorists come home. And that does address a phenomenon that uh, some people uh, are aware of and interested in, but I think has been um, not looked at uh, sufficiently. And that's why we embarked upon 
publishing a report uh, in this nature, not just from an academic uh, perspective, but also from the experiences that I myself have had and then alongside of Mitch Silver, who has been in my life directly and indirectly for some time, as you'll hear um, as we uh, discuss uh, the report itself. Um, there are uh, and is a large number of those with terrorism-related convictions coming home from prison over the next several years, and we have not done much to address that issue or to prepare for it, whether that's at the level of in-house de-radicalization initiatives offered by the United States government in the federal prison system, or whether that is in looking at voluntary uh, community-led approaches to de-radicalization while in prison, and particularly with regard to the reentry and reintegration of those coming home with terrorism-related offenders, it's safe to say that we've done hardly anything to prepare for this. And the reason that it hits home and hits so home for me is because I am one of those who returned from the federal prison system having been convicted of a terrorism-related offense. My name is Jesse Morton, but I used to go by Yunus Abdullah Muhammad. Uh, that was my name after I converted to Islam. And gradually over time, uh, I became a chief uh, propagandist and one of the premier recruiters, particularly if you look at just the United States, with regard to disseminating a Salafi jihadi ideology into the West in the English language, tailored to make a jihadi cool culture appeal to Western youth. Uh, and in the process of doing that, I was ultimately incarcerated uh, for communicating threats against the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon, but came around some degree full circle. My story starts, and it's important to emphasize that radicalization is, of course, a complex process, no linear trajectory, of course, but oftentimes we do see variables that are similar amongst those that go on to become like me, uh, incarcerated uh, as a result of their actions. But those actions and the adoption of that ideology typically stem from other issues. Uh, for example, in my case, as a child, I was severely abused, traumatized to a degree, searched for solutions in my society to the abuse that was going on in the house. For example, went to a guidance counselor at school, asked for intervention, some help to prevent the abuse. Uh, in those days, there was no mandated reporter status, and so I was simply laughed off, went to police in the community, but uh, was discredited by the fact that I had a reputation as sort of a, uh, a bad individual. Uh, and felt as if society did not come to my assistance. And I think that that's important to recognize because what happened was that mistrust that could be developed not just by a young Caucasian kid in rural Pennsylvania, but also particularly amongst those that are trying to second, third generation immigrants or people that came here as refugees, um, you can get the sensation that the society around you does not want to protect you or does not serve you. Uh, and it opens you up uh, to the possibility and the prospects of adopting a radical ideal or ideology. And that's what I did. Uh, at the age of 16, after being abused, I ran away, took to the streets, tried to figure things out, and became what you would call a seeker, searching for something to believe in. First, I found ultra-liberal ideologies, uh, anarchism, communism appealing, but they didn't work very well for me because it led me to experiment with things like drugs, to not address the underlying trauma and to seek traditional means of mental health treatment, uh, for PTSD, for something that I've come to realize I suffer from now, which is bipolar disorder. And eventually I converted to Islam, which was very powerful for me because it gave me the first sense of stability. Uh, I prayed five times a day. I fasted one month out of the year. Uh, I was given a structure and a code to follow and rules to abide by that gave me the first sentiment of 
stability and comfort that I found in my life. I was able to start to attend college for the first time, having been a dropout of high school, got a scholarship to go to a bachelor's degree program, became a certified substance abuse counselor in the state of New York. I did a lot of things that suggested that Islam should have been something that for me proved productive, that helped me. Unfortunately, because I was already exposed and already politicized and already revolutionary with my previous ideology, I adopted a very politicized interpretation of Islam. And in the context of 9-11, the unfolding wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I sympathized with the other. So I realized today that it was merely a projection of my own frustration and pain with the society that I felt had not protected me. And then it really had little to do with an objective choice of an ideology or an interpretation of a religion. And it had much more to do with my own personal issues. But it took me a long time to come around and to realize that. And so my story progressed. I converted to Islam. I was in Harlem, New York. I converted to Islam originally having read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which piqued my interest. And it says a lot because the interpretation of Islam that I adopted had much more to do with the interpretation of Islam that was adopted by Malcolm X than it did with the Prophet Muhammad. And once I adopted that politicized interpretation of Islam, I wanted to become Malcolm. And I found myself on 125th Street in Harlem, New York, preaching and calling people to not only oppose the Iraq war, but to adopt Islam as a solution, particularly from amongst African-American communities. And I was successful in getting people to convert at first. And then I found an offshoot of al-Mahajirun, probably the most notorious uh, radicalizing uh, agency in the West for quite some time that was located in New York City called the Islamic Thinkers Society. Getting involved in that network was very important for the next step of my radicalization. It was a haphazard contact, but what it did was it cemented me inside of a community of the like-minded where that ideology was able to be disseminated in very concrete terms, which cemented my commitment, but also in that context made me want to uh, prove my commitment. And as a white convert to Islam, I was the valuable guy that you could hold up and say, hey, see, look, check out here. We have one of your own. I've always been somewhat uh, curious to the point where anything that I adopt, I take very seriously. I learned very quickly. I became one of the chief speakers in their organization. And I developed written correspondence with Abdullah Faisal, who's a Jamaican cleric trained in Saudi Arabia that at the time was in prison in Britain uh, for uh, communicating uh, threats but also at the same time responsible indirectly uh, and linked with several people that had gone on to carry out acts of terrorism from Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, to Jermaine Lindsay, one of the 7-7 attackers from 2005. And so he was released in 2007 as we embarked upon a transformation in the way that we were seeing the threat to the West from terrorists, away from one where there was a primary concern for attacks plotted and planned overseas, into one where we were more concerned with homegrown violent extremists like myself, those disseminating in, uh, the uh, information about Al-Qaeda and inspiring others to carry out attacks at home. And so in the period that I started my own organization with Abdullah Faisal and other associates, the idea here in the United States particularly was that the information of Al-Qaeda, the ideology of Al-Qaeda, the ideology of the terrorists would not resonate because the American Muslim community is less prone or less vulnerable or less susceptible to those ideas because they have higher levels of education, higher levels of income, greater levels of integration. And my organization was primarily responsible for proving that that was not the case. We developed uh, the sort of template upon which English language jihadist propaganda continues to exist today. Some of the things that we did was we started the first English language jihadi magazines that have now mutated first in Inspire, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Penin Peninsula's offshoot. 
I worked in conjunction with Samir Khan and Anwar Laudaki in developing that template. That became Debic, that became Grumia. We were the first to use social media 2.0. We basically navigated to YouTube before most others did, uh, where you could not only uh, disseminate information, but you could engage in the comments section, more interactive approach to communication. We used a platform called PalTalk in the same way that ISIS is using encrypted platforms like WhatsApp and Telegram today. So in many ways, we started the core of what became uh, a viral uh, message, uh, and particularly once I was incarcerated in 2011, and as the Syrian civil war turned into jihad, um, became a very powerful way of mobilizing Western youth to not only travel abroad to join terrorist organizations, uh, but also to act at home and carry out violence in their name. Um, so my progression into that movement, I was a serious, committed believer. We threatened the writers of South Park, uh, for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon and my co-defendant, Zachary Chesser, who is now doing 25 years in, a federal, in the federal prison system, tried to travel to join al-Shabaab in Somalia. That was the very first case where you had this safe haven where the jihadists had attained to territorial control and the call was no longer to preach or disseminate information or carry out attacks at home, but it was to travel to join an Islamic state, so to say, or a land where they were ruling by Sharia. And he was arrested on his way to Somalia uh, at the airport. And I knew that my time was likely up. So I fled to Morocco. And it was during my time in Morocco uh, that the Arab Spring broke out. And it was there that my transformation back out of my commitment to Salafi jihadism began. While I was in Morocco, I was teaching at a university, uh, a British university called the University of Sunderland. I was teaching economics. But in the context of the Arab Spring, I found myself talking with my students who were prepping for GRE classes so that they could come here to study. Um, talking about what they wanted and started to reconnect with my roots. I found myself, interestingly enough, teaching Hamiltonian economics to a group of six Moroccan millennial youth that were very interested in understanding what direction they wanted their country to go in politically and economically. And it was those conversations that made me see the world in a bit of a different way than the black and white worldview that I had adopted quite naturally, having adopted Salafi jihadism. Still, I had to face the facts that I was a wanted man in the United States, and ultimately I was arrested on a street coming out of a small Salafi Jihadi mosque in Casablanca, Morocco, and set for extradition back to the United States. I was arrested, and I spent five months in a prison in Rabat waiting for my extradition, and it was there that I met Mohammed Fizazi. Mohammed Fizazi was a radical preacher that aligned himself with those that carried out 2004 Casablanca bombings, and he was incarcerated from 2005 up until that point. He had changed, though. And I say all these components of my de-radicalization process because I think that they're pertinent and that they're applicable when we talk about things that we looked at in the report. Mohammed Fazazi didn't talk to me about ideology, but when he came to meet me after I was in the front page of the Moroccan press as American al-Qaeda, he talked to me about his personal life experiences. He basically talked to me about who he was as a human being and got to know me. Never mentioned ideology at all, but you could sense the fact that what he was saying is that as you get older, you will learn from your mistakes. And that was the primary message that I took away from it. And so after those meetings uh, occurred, I woke up one day during Ramadan in Morocco to find out that Mohammed Fazazi was released from prison and now was writing uh, in the Moroccan press, uh, denouncing and renouncing who he once was. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was essentially wrong, but thought and feared that I would spend the majority of the rest of my life in a prison in the United States. The U.S. government came to pick me up on a private plane in late 2011 from Morocco to fly me back to the United States. And by that time, I had started my transition back out of radicalization. 
they put me in the orange jumpsuit as if I was perhaps going to uh, Bagram or Guantanamo. The conspiracy theories still resonated in my head. But when they put me on the airplane, a Secret Service agent put the Quran down in front of me on the desk and he asked me whether I wanted to be called Yunus Abdullah Muhammad or I wanted to be called Jesse Morton. And that was the first time in my life I had spent over a decade of my life previous to that trying to kill Jesse Morton, trying to never hear the name again. And for some reason, a knee-jerk reaction, I asked him to call me Jesse, and that's when I really knew that I was altering my perspectives. They flew me back home to Alexander Detention Center, not too far away from here, where I was housed in solitary confinement because of my ability to radicalize other inmates, and I was kept in isolation. Isolation ended up being probably the best thing for me because there was a compassionate guard there that didn't like the idea of keeping people in 23-hour lockdown, and she would take me during her 10-hour shifts four days a week to a law library um, in the facility late at night. And I would sit there for about eight to 10 hours, four days a week, where they housed the general uh, library that was disseminating books to the prisoners. And it was there that I reconnected with my roots. I read Encyclopedia Britannica's great books of the Western world and dove into Jean Locke in detail and Descartes in detail, Montesquieu in, de in detail, et cetera, but also had access to biographies of the founding fathers also had access to good books that were from writers like Daniel Kahneman and Nassim Nicholas Taylor, people that continue to influence the perspectives that I adhere to now today, opened me back up to critical thinking and opened me back up to identifying that the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment, and the adoption and the development of democracy and liberal societies is something that we all should appreciate and value. And I started to transform further. Long story short, I ultimately took a plea agreement that would cap me at 15 years incarceration in the US system and was ultimately sentenced to 11 and a half years. But during that process, I had to endure a debriefing process where I had to answer questions honestly or else I would go back to trial where I would get a lot longer sentence duration. And I developed a relationship with the FBI that was quite productive. A female agent showed empathy to me and I took a liking to her and we were able to look at some of the students and the ramifications of the preaching that I left behind as the Syrian war turned more into a jihad. We were able to thwart some terrorist attacks and track the developments of people that had moved over into Syria and continued to communicate with me thinking they were talking to me in clandestine communications but actually being able to monitor their whereabouts, look at the networks that they were formulating and look at the ways that they were adopting the template for propaganda that I had helped set up and using it to radicalize and to recruit Americans and people in West generally. So um, that got me a reduction in sentence ultimately to the point where rather than do the 11 and a half years, I was released on March 1st, 2015, having served three years and nine months and was released into a community that I didn't know what I was going to do. I was one of the first ones that came home with a terrorism related conviction. Here I was honored by the fact that the U.S. government gave me a second chance. Here I was honored by the fact that um, I was back on the streets, but I didn't I couldn't find work, for example. Uh, I suffered from serious trauma as a consequence not only of the incarceration but of the original ideology that I adopted and then in turn the trauma that induced me to enter the radical movement in the first place and I sort of suffered. Um, it was very hard to reintegrate. It was very hard to find a sense of significance, meaning and purpose looking at how the rest of my life was going to unfold. And I make no excuses, but after working with the FBI on a case uh, where there was to be a beheading and an attempt to travel to Syria. I was outed by the Washington Post um, as an informant uh, in a courtroom 
my name was mentioned. I was listed in an indictment under confidential informant number one, and the attorney tried to make it seem like it was an entrapment case because they used a former terrorist to uh, engage the individuals that were involved in this arrest. Uh, the judge struck my name from the record. The prosecuting attorney asked that the name be struck, but a young reporter for the Washington Post ran with the story anyway. And suddenly I was under risk uh, and under threat. I had to move. I had to be moved. But I no longer could operate in the capacity that was still giving me a sense of reward and significance that was granted to me by the U.S. government upon my return. So I started to think about becoming America's first former jihadist. I had seen people in Britain. I had seen people in the West that had come full circle and changed their views and then became former extremists speaking out against the ideology they once adopted. And I really wanted to do that. And I was given an opportunity to do so at George Washington University's program on extremism. Um, unfortunately, the very first day that we launched my situation, it was in the front page of the New York Times, it was at PBS NewsHour, it was on CNN, and then it was covered thereafter throughout the world, my narrative. But in that narrative, I talked about the abuse that I had experienced as a child because I was asked to discuss my radicalization. And of course, you can't just start with the ideology in and of itself because there's all this background stuff. And it was the first time, I don't think many people realized it, but for me it was def difficult because I had been in intimate relationships with women and friends where I had never mentioned the fact that I was even abused. I don't think I ever told anybody publicly in my life other than a handful of people about the abuse that I had experienced and about the difficult time I had as a 16-year-old runaway and some of the things that had happened then. And so all of a sudden my story was in national press and covered uh, all over. And I thought that this would be cathartic, but it proved, as a matter of fact, to reinduce the original trauma. So I felt guilty for outing my mother, but at the same time, I felt relieved that I had finally been able to talk about my experiences and felt like it could do some social good, and it threw me into a free fall. Uh, I had tried to get mental health treatment from Virginia State, but Medicaid for Men only covers contraception, so I couldn't get the services that I needed with regard to counseling and mentoring. Um, I had... Uh, tried to develop uh, sort of relationships with people that could create a, a support network, but had a hard time because of the stigmatization of being labeled a terrorist. I had been divorced. I'd gotten into a negative uh, relationship. And now coming full circle and realizing the mistakes that I made because I ultimately ended up relapsing uh, on drugs and falling into a mental health manic episode uh, as a result of not knowing how to cope. And one of the things that I've come to realize now today is that if you remove a radical ideology, essentially what happens is the same issues that drove you into that in the first place are still prevalent and they're still, they, they still persist. So I thought that you remove the idea and you remove the problem, but it goes much deeper than the idea. And so in the process of trying to rebuild after falling apart, and now working with Mitch Silver, the former director of the NYPD that monitored me for several years, uh, I think that we have a deeper appreciation from my story and then from doing the interviews with the people that we interviewed for the report and other people that are in prison right now for terrorism-related offenses of the complex dynamic and the holistic approach that will be needed not only to cover this issue but in the way that we recommend in the report for covering the issue, to cover it in a way that has reverberations that affect the space of countering terrorism from a preventative, from an intervention, from a counter-messaging standpoint as well. So what we describe in the report, we can talk about it a bit more, basically is a way to prevent, because I ended up relapsing on drugs, but other people will come home with even greater degrees of complications. And the ultimate answer that they may give themselves is that what do I have left to live for? And then the question becomes whether or not they turn and resort to violence or a return to engagement with the terrorism network.
that they once belonged to. I think that this is an important issue uh, that has not been addressed, and I think that what we cover in the paper is a way to address it. And so we're here today to try to initiate a conversation that, can, that, that, that cannot just criticize the fact that the U.S. government hasn't done much to prepare for this coming of releasees, but also to talk about moving into the specifics of implementing something that can resolve these issues and can address the complications that surround them. Thank you. I just, um, maybe a few words just in terms of, you know, how I became aware of Jesse and then how this partnership has formed. Um, you know, as Jesse mentioned, he joined this group called the Islamic Thinker Society in New York. And from experiences that the NYPD had overseas, frankly, speaking to our British colleagues and learning about Al-Muhajroon and the significant percentage, maybe a third of the, the terrorism cases in the UK at a certain moment in time, 2006, 2007, were people who had come from this Islamist group, Al-Muhajroon. Then lo and behold, in New York City, we had not only Al-Muhajroon, but then a spin-off group, Islamic Thinker Society, that espoused all the same views. And then from that, you know, that's where Jesse really came on the radar screen of the NYPD Intelligence Division as a member of the Islamic Thinker Society. Then subsequently, he spun off um, with a group of the people who frankly thought that Islamic Thinker Society wasn't active enough, wasn't radical enough, wasn't extreme enough. And then partnering with Abdullah Faisal, Sheikh Faisal, who among the UK preachers, Abu Qatada and Abu Hamza and Omar Bakri, to some degree was probably the most extreme of them all, was suddenly going to be their ideological lodestar, became very disturbing for the NYPD. And as a result, um, we utilized human intelligence sources, undercover officers, um, multiple, to get inside of the Islamic Thinker Society and Revolution Muslim to the core of the group because we were concerned that, like in the UK environment, there were going to be people who spun off of these groups um, to commit violent acts. We weren't necessarily concerned for Revolution Muslim itself to, to conduct attack, but the model that we saw from the UK that people said, you know what, demonstrating in front of 10 Downing Street and saying that you know Islam should be over the Houses of Parliament, there are some people who thought that wasn't enough, and then they were those who traveled to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And you know, lo and behold, sure enough, if you look at Revolution Muslim, um, we talked about this uh, last spring, there are 15 different plots around the world um, where people who were radicalized to violence through this group and through Jesse's leadership, through Sheikh Faisal's leadership, we're talking about a plot against the stock exchange in London, uh, a woman, Roshana Chowdhury, who stabbed the UK parliamentarian, um, Jihad Jain, who never even met Revolution Muslim, but just followed them online, two individuals in New York, um, Carlos Almonte and Mohammed Alessa, who wanted to leave New Jersey to go to Somalia and join Al-Shabaab, um, Abdullah Hamid Shahada, who wanted to leave New York and actually flew to Pakistan to join Al-Qaeda before he was turned around. So the list goes on and on. Um, Samir Khan, who you know had collaborated with Jesse in Jihad Recollections, ultimately killed with Anwar al-Awlaki in Yemen. So there was quite a long list of people um, who Revolution Muslim affected. And you know, when once the threat was made against the South Park founders, 
Frankly, it was an enterprising Eastern District of Virginia prosecutor who figured out a way that actually this was prosecutable. Um, and, you know, credit to him working with FBI in Washington and NYPD to ultimately, you know, frankly, lead to Jesse's arrest in, in Morocco, which to some degree probably, you know, saved you in many ways. Um, so, you know, we, we knew Jesse uh, intimately, you know, what he was having for breakfast many days. Um, spinach omelets with cheese, cheddar, um, you know, and Jesse and I got connected again after he, uh, started GW as the first former. And this seemed like, you know, a potential great opportunity for him. And frankly, a great opportunity in the U.S. because the U.S. was not taking advantage of formers who could be articulate and argue against this ideology. The Lackawanna Six, who might have been appropriate because they had sort of walked away from that ideology, frankly, you know, weren't articulate, didn't enough, didn't know the theology, the ideology to make that cogent argument. So we began this discussion, you know, and then Jesse, as he mentioned, you know, had this, uh, you know, fallback um, after GW. And it was frankly in, in the summer of 2017, when yet again, Al-Muhajaroon's malign influence was felt after the London Bridge attacks, where one of the primary individuals, uh, an individual, um, you know, from Al-Muhajaroon led those attacks. I said, wow, still Al-Muhajaroon? You know, we've never talked about the phenomena in the U.S. publicly. This should be talked about. And, you know, rather than a former counterterrorism person talking about it alone, why not do it with Jesse, who was intimately involved, who has an insider's view? And we just decided to talk about this one singular project, you know, writing this paper, talking about, all, all, you know, Revolution Muslim, who they affect, and frankly, how a lot of those techniques on social media were suddenly adopted by the Islamic State um, and, and really leveraged off of. And then, frankly, that partnership has grown in some different areas, a, a report on Sheikh Faisal, um, Parallel Networks. And really, this, you know, is as a result of, of working with Jess, we've now expanded um, working with another former Bryant Neal Vinyas, who was a New Yorker who joined Al-Qaeda and has repented. Shaker Masri, an individual in Chicago who wanted to join Al-Shabaab but was stopped. So we've now begun to work with a number of people who are formers who have come out and, and we're in contact with some individuals who are still in prison. Um, but, you know, as Jesse mentioned, we realize this is not just a, a one-off problem. We may be, we will be dealing with, you know, close to a quarter of the number of people who are incarcerated in the U.S. are coming out. What is there for these people? Um, you know, J um, you know, Bryant Neal Venus was put in a three-quarters house in New York, you know, in Far Rockaway. Um, Shaker Mashi left the, the side of the road in Minneapolis. So these are people who, you know, we know the recidivism rate for most type of crimes isn't zero. Um, terrorism is a particular type of insidious crime that we want the recidivism rate to be zero, but with no programming in place, that's unlikely to happen. So hence this report. Thank you. Um, there's a lot to get into, isn't there? Um, I guess the first, the first thing that occurs to me when I'm thinking about some of the recommendations in, in your report, and, and you may want to flesh those out further, is I'm wondering if there is a country um, out there who, I mean, well, let's take Europe as an example, where the sentences are shorter, the turnaround is much quicker, people are released much quicker for terrorism-related offenses, and so by necessity, Europe has had to deal with this in, in a much more, their, their programs are somewhat more developed than, than the US, but that 
doesn't necessarily mean that those programs are any good. Um, so I was wondering if there's any if there's any country or if there's any um, approach that's been taken that strikes you as especially successful, and, and, and on the flip side, any approach that is especially unsuccessful, or if the cultural difference between Europe and the US are too great to make the comparison especially worthwhile. So that is, uh, we outline a lot of the answers to your questions in detail in the report, but of course one thing that we recognized when we did the review uh, and we already had a lot of intimate contact with actors on the ground in Western European countries that are doing de-radicalization initiatives that are affiliated with or connected to uh, convicts for terrorism-related offenses, is that each program and each approach will necessarily have to be tailored to the unique environment in which it exists and the national context in which it exists. So the United States, in the same way that they told us uh, when we started propagandizing at a level where we unabashedly supported al-Qaeda that it would fall flat. We were basically laughed at at the beginning because it was you're trying to transplant something that might work in Western Europe, but it won't work in the United States because the United States is different. Its American Muslim population is totally different, totally proved wrong. And that's actually what I think you could talk for a long time about with regard to CVE or countering violent extremism initiatives in general, but particularly prison DRAD. There's cases, and it is, some of this stuff is in, intuitively sound, and it's why we took a particular approach that you would call a theory of change-based realist evaluation perspective, recognizing that with limited evidence-based practices in a field, you're essentially starting with a hypothesis of what will work. But the only way that you'll be able to start with an effective hypothesis or an effective theory of change when you develop a particular program for any aspect of CVE is to actually understand the nuances on the ground of what that's really like. And that's the utility, I think, that Mitch and I offer is the counterterrorism expertise and the lens, but then coinciding to a, an experiential-based uh, insight into what does this stuff really look like on the ground. And so if you look, for example, program in Australia, several millions of dollars to fund reentry and reintegration initiatives for people that were returning from prison. And one of their participants was engaged with what seems to make sense, moderate imams providing services to try to impart a different interpretation of Islam uh, in order to facilitate better reentry and reintegration. Well, one of their clients essentially recidivated, but recidivated to the degree where he held Someone in a hotel hostage went upstairs, tied up a prostitute, and proceeded to go back onto the street and engage in a shootout with the police. The day after it was announced that he was a participant in the program, the, the Australian government had to take the brunt of blowback because the mosque that was providing the services completely withdrew from their participation. I think there's a lot to be said about that. And so there's a lot of things that I think look intuitively to be sound. Right, but don't. For example, if you isolate, a country like the Netherlands isolates offenders convicted of terrorism-related offenses. What's the problem with isolation and putting people in blocks is that you simply create the same sort of social psychological components that will prevent de-radicalization. And if you're looking at a very low base rate of individuals that are radicalized, they go on to commit violent extremism, but they need cemented in their convictions, you can see that they would only heighten their animosity. And so the only solution and recourse for would be monitoring and surveillance upon release without any awareness of who was really where they were at on an ideological spectrum when you conduct a risk assessment. These things are very complicated. We look at the United States, for example, and the, first, the, the, the way we outline the report is, is mandatory de-radicalization an option? If not, would a voluntary in-prison de-radicalization initiative work? And if not, 
what would we be doing to prepare for the reentry and reintegration of these individuals? We've tried similar things. And one of the anecdotal pieces that we offer in the report is with the question of mandatory DRAD. We adopted shortly after 9-11 with a heightened arrest rate or a heightened number of arrests related to terrorism, we adopted a model what we called communication management units. There's two of them in our country, one in Terre Haute and one in Marion, Illinois, where the majority of the people there are convicted in some way, shape, or form for a terrorism-related offense, whether it's far left or far right, but mostly predominantly the jihadists have been housed there. There was a, a case where my co-defendant was in there and had smuggled out a letter where he said that, you know, all praise is due to Allah. We've been blessed. They've moved a radical preacher here who um, was moved here because of the risk that he posed in a Michigan prison. There was five Muslims that were there when he, the imam, entered, and now there was 40 there. And so they moved him here to prevent him from disseminating knowledge where he was at, but now he has become our imam. Well, that individual was uh, Ahmad Musa Jabril. And Ahmad Musa Jabril was able to cement the beliefs of those that were in the communication management unit. And when you talk about this, you have committed jihadists like Zachary Chesser, my co-defendant, and Ahmad Musa Jabril around kids that made a mistake. 20-year-old kids that have probably realized that it really wasn't worth it what they did. But how are they going to de-radicalize when they're exposed every day to the teachings of an Ahmad Musa Jabril who goes on and comes home and becomes one of the chief propagandists that's advocating for people to join the jihad in Syria? Of 160 people that were analyzed in a study, Ahmad Musa Jabril, they followed Ahmad Musa Jabril at a ratio, 60% of them followed him intimately on Twitter, right? So this is an individual that was in a communication management unit that left and went on to become a chief propagandist and radicalizer. These are the things that you have to look at when you think about mandatory DRAD. So the United States is very unique. But what we identified in the report is very interesting and we think is, would, would, would be very uh, appropriate uh, approach to the problem of voluntary DRAD because a lot of the people that we're writing that are convicted for terrorism-related offenses right now in the Federal Bureau of Prison System, they have changed. They have recognized that they've made a mistake. The problem is, is if you don't provide the services that they need, my awareness and the reason that I pointed to my awareness is that the same stuff that made me enter into extremist movements still needed to be addressed. I had thought it was about an ideology. It wasn't. I got into the ideology because of the trauma, because of the mental health, because of the substance abuse, because of the other variables. Those are going to persist and they're going to amplify now because you don't have a movement that can prevent you. Right? So the same sense of meaning, significance, importance is going to be there. So. In the BOP system right now, they have a program in Otisville, New York, that very little people know about. But essentially what happens is if I'm a gang member or in a hate-based group like the Nazi lowriders is one that's very popular in the prison system, there's repercussions if I leave that movement, meaning I'll be hurt. But if I go to my counselor and they refer me and they say uh, that after a debriefing process that I've changed, one day my name will be called and I'll be put on a bus and I'll end up in Otisville, New York, where I'll be on a housing unit that's on a general prison compound, medium security facility. I'll be met by a former gang member. I'll be met by somebody who's likely doing life in prison as a consequence of being a big gang leader, probably has some reputation in the movement, and he will become my mentor. And I'll be housed on a, on a block where I will be given some sort of services that are better than typical services for general inmates, and I'll be prepared to withdraw from the movement, but also to learn how to live a productive life upon my release. That's their gang dropout program. We identified that as a model that might be very useful for jihadists, and there's little recognition that that exists because Bureau of Prisons is very good about keeping what goes on in-house in somewhat 
under the radar, which is the way it should be. In prison, stays in prison. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. And then on top of that, they have a program called RDAP, which is the Residential Drug and Alcohol Treatment Program. Now, RDAP's unique because with the sentences averaging now 13.7 years for a person convicted of a terrorism-related offense, but the age of the offender going down and decreasing now, ISIS-related offenders are 27 years old on average. Uh, and there's some outliers that bring that up higher. If you take out the outliers, it's like 23. But um, So we're going to have young people that are going to be coming home still young. And residential drug and alcohol treatment program gives you nine months of treatment, intensive cognitive behavioral services and interventions, and you get a year deduction off of your sentence. We think that this is something that if synthesized with the gang dropout unit on a voluntary basis could be tailored for individual extremist offenders. And the good thing about getting ahead of this with the jihadist curve is that with the rise in right-wing extremism and the serious prevalence of right-wing extremist gangs in the prison system, we think that we might be on to being able to develop a template that can be useful for expanding into extremisms in general. When you talk about reentry and reintegration, there's very little, it's like an ad hoc basis from what we can determine right now from the people that we've talked to case by case, district by district, community by community. The problem is you can't measure outcomes if things are not being structured in a way that they're formalized, more formalized and interventions are not being tailored. So essentially what we discuss in the paper is we look at the nuances of the American system, and then we develop sort of a mechanism where you can address the problem of the individuals coming home, but you can address it in a contextual way where you can also utilize other activities that we have going on in our organization to provide the same sense of meaning, significance, and purpose that extremist organizations offer. And then when you can do that and you can pull those people into an alternative, more positive world, they become your most powerful, credible voices in the other realms of CVE that you engage in, whether that be intervention, prevention, or counter-messaging. And, and Robin, to your point about um, you know, which countries, it touches a little bit, you know, there's no country who I think that we've looked at who seems to have figured this all out. There, there seems to be a lot of experimentation, frankly, going on. You know, some experimenting going bad in Australia, but a lot of experimentation in the UK, in Germany, in, in, in Denmark. So we're trying to see, you know, what works. We're in contact with people overseas. Um, you know, one interesting thing, and it touches on this right-wing issue, is that a lot of the early work on how to rehabilitate and reintegrate and provide off-ramps frankly, has been done on the right-wing side of the equation in the Nordic countries and in Germany, like a program like Exit Germany. So, you know, we're, we're looking at those, but I think ultimately we realize that this has to be a program that works in the, in the American system, in the American environment. So take what you can from those, but it's going to have to be something that, that has its own, you know, American flavor to it. Um, thank you. Well, look, we've got about 15 minutes, 20 minutes come for questions, so please. Um, Katie, why don't we go to the front here? And any uh, affiliation you have, if you feel comfortable saying it, please do. Katie Gorka, DHS, no? Now it's on. Katie Gorka, DHS. So thanks very much, this was super interesting. I feel like Robin, it's like, where do you even begin? Um, I will say this, government absolutely is working on it. So my colleague, Michael Brown, I can, really commend him. He's been kind of leading the charge for the past year. A lot of work has been done, not just at DHS, but other agencies. Everybody's keenly aware of the numbers that are coming out and also the inadequacy of what to do about it. Um, I think as well, it's very interesting the fact that the new national counterterrorism strategy does prominently feature prevention. So I think there's a lot more interest in prevention. 
where after 9-11, prevention was really understood narrowly as stopping an imminent attack, and now it's understood much more broadly. But there are a couple really big challenges, and I, the two that I would identify as the biggest are that with government, you have very divided authority. So you've got Bureau of Prisons, you've got U.S. attorneys, you've got DHS doing some prevention. So kind of wrangling that is really difficult, and especially when you start to talk about needing, you know, mental health services and that kind of thing. You've got local police, you've got local services, local service providers. How do you wrangle all of that to make this work? And secondarily, I think the other really big problem is the, simply our budget process. You know, we're working on budgets now for three years from now. So how do you make that work? And so I actually think the solution is that your task is not so much, um, I mean, it is partly getting the federal government to change its thinking, but it's actually to change the narrative in the society. And I will say the good news, uh, this is certainly happening at the federal level. We are definitely moving much more toward, um, for example, understanding the role of trauma, right? That's definitely come in much more. Much bigger interest in interventions, both before something before somebody crosses, but also when they're coming out. The importance of of intervening and getting involved. But I think unless you really get everybody on board, meaning Congress and the president and the different agencies and local police and local NGOs and foundations, I think you have to get everybody thinking in these terms. And I would agree that one of the challenges is. Up until now, there have been so few voices. There's such a small evidence base. Um, so I think it's great that you've made the report. I think it's a great first step. And, I, and I'll just say also one last thing on this. I've, I've heard a number of times, you know, the sort of the frustration of people who are outside of government um, talking about saying, well, government's not thinking about this or talking about this. But actually, a lot of the big issues we really are. Um, but people never want to come talk to us, right? I mean, we get people talking to us if there's a grant, you know, grant program being announced. Um, but actually, I mean, I think people in government are the ones who are also really grappling with this and really are open to the conversation and are really hungry for the evidence base. Thank you for that. I, you know, I think there's a lot you know, to chew on in that, you know, question and, and statement. I think a couple of things. Number one, you know, you know, we're aware that government, having been in government, know Michael, you know, we know there's an issue that within, you know, let's say like a DHS is being looked at, but writ large in the public discussion, I think, you know, most of the public doesn't know about it. And if we're talking about getting funding for this, that means there's got to be public awareness. There's got to be some pressure, um, you know, to get funding. So frankly, later today, we're going to go up on the Hill and try and meet with some representatives and staff to talk about this issue and say, hey, you know, this is something that you want to get ahead of. You don't want to be talking about, you know, the former terrorist who got released from prison and went back to violence after the fact. Um, you know, in terms of how do you do it? Because there are a lot of players. I think that really is, is an interesting issue. And, you know, we've had some experience dealing with this and some of the individuals we're working with. Let's say, you know, in New York, for a fellow like a Bryant Neal Vinius, um, an American who joined Al-Qaeda, who was captured, who was a great source of intelligence for the U.S. government, who was released from prison um, and is now working his way back into developing a life um, in New York. You know, in working with him one-on-one, -on -one, I'm dealing with the U.S. attorney who heads you know, who oversees his case. 
the FBI agent who's responsible for him, his probation officer, his attorney. Um, so there's a whole team of people. And I think, you know, if, if at, a, at a national level, if the U.S. could provide government provide some funding and maybe some standards, and then to some degree, you're going to have to leave it to some of the local districts to experiment and do it a little bit differently in Minneapolis from Eastern District. And that might be a little bit different from the way L.A. is going to do it. Um, and that's OK, because you know what? They are different. Um, but, you know, with some funding and with some standards and maybe some guidance, I think those are some of the pieces of the puzzle. Probation, FBI, the judge, um, the prosecutor, they all know how to work together. They're doing it. You know, in, in dealing with an individual, I have to, as an outside community person, if you will, I have to deal with all of them together. They're on the same page. So I think, you know, with some of those ingredients, it could work. Um, we just have to be okay that it's going to look differently in different parts of the country. And just to, just to follow up on that, I, we, we, we are well aware that government is looking into the issue. What we tried to provide is with our experience and also our uh, academic understanding to give a solution rather than just express a grievance. And we hope that the paper conveys a nuanced understanding that helps people better understand what the conditions and what the complications are, uh, budget constraints, including the whole gamut of issues. What we propose is that the government should partner with a community uh, service organization like our own. But what we look at is we approach CVE from a very ecosystemic lens so that we're a CVE provider to operate in this realm, it would not be confined solely to this realm that we think very multidimensionally and dynamically about CVE. So rather than just treat individuals with reentry and reintegration services, the ultimate idea would be to create pathways and avenues for them to make a positive contribution having come full circle. There are cases where there's going to be continued cemented commitment to an ideology that then your objective in treatment as part of your treatment planning protocol and your interventions is simply to minimize risk and to protect the public. But there are going to be credible voices that come out of this. And one thing that we're doing right now is we're engaging in a number of counter-messaging activities that will require writers and they will require creative people. They will require uh, different approaches to managing a website that will be affiliated with counter-messaging materials. We're taking back the English language jihadi template that I established, making it more productive. We're trying to develop helplines that will intersect. So if we look at it ecosystemically, we've been up and running for about six months. And what we hope to do is we hope to achieve an ability to operate in all realms at one time, but to develop our programs and our mechanisms in a way where we create an entire ecosystem. Because you can't challenge networks and combat networks unless you have a network of your own. So what we're really trying to utilize is not just the formers, but our allies, people that come out, reach out to us, want to support us, whether it's our interns or whether it's people that are affiliated with us, people like Michael and conversations that we have with governmental officials, so that we can build something that's more than just a program, something that can become a network in and of itself. And then hopefully, if we develop it the right way, can become a movement that challenges everything from the level of prevention into intervention and then back into counter-messaging and onward and upward from there. I'm going to try and take. Uh, I'm going to take three questions at the same time. Otherwise, I'm going to be like a, a terrible, a terrible chair, and it's going to spill on for like hours. So why don't we go? I'm going to go straight down the center of the room uh, to John, and then the gentleman behind him, and then the gentleman directly behind him. So let's do three in a row. I'm uh, John Rosamondo with the Investigator Project on Terrorism. One of the things that 
I follow are uh, groups like uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Muslim Public Affairs Council, that uh, frame uh, such CVE efforts as anti-Muslim and try to uh, destroy them, try to keep uh, mosques and Muslim uh, community organizations from becoming involved. I mean, what is your uh, view of those efforts and their narratives, and how do you counter their uh, narratives? The question is that whether you guys have, I mean, it's not probably this issue cannot be resolved by this uh, group, but uh, main, uh, have you ever come out? What is the cause? What is the main reason of all of this rather than you guys are looking at the symptom? I remember after 9-11 and one of the members of the uh, uh, committee, I mean, commission that it was investigating I believe it was Senator Mitchell. He said that in one of his interviews that uh, uh, why? Have you guys looked at why this happens? Have you looked okay. at the why in the society that 1% or more than 90% of all, uh, all the assets okay, automatically, so if it goes out another one comes out, another one comes, one day would be Muslim, another day we, yeah, would be we, we other get the, ones, I think that, we get that's the, the issue, okay? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Scott Kim. I work for Senator John Kennedy. I really appreciate you guys doing this because I graduated from Stuyvesant High School, which was targeted by two terrorist attacks. Um, I think in this past decade. Anyway, but you talked a lot about the process of radicalization and if they redeem themselves like strategic uses of their experiences. And you talked about specific DRAD programs implemented around the world. And I was wondering if you had any hypothesized, since none have been rigorously proven, like crossover programs like higher education in prison or something like that that would reduce recidivism for terrorists. And some critique, like people of my senators bent, that we don't need to incentivize a lot of these programs because the demand is so high that they're like waitlist for waitlist. Do you know if DRAD programs like the ones you talked about would kind of be like this, and or if it would if if, if introduced, it would take a lot of cajoling, like introducing like reduced sentence sentencing incentives to get imprisoned terrorists to participate. And finally, sorry, but um. While the U.S. is unique politically, aren't we also unique within the Western world about like the sort of frequency and intensity of the punitivity of our correction system? Like that imam, couldn't he be confined in solitary? Like why is he allowed to talk to so many people since he's been a proven threat? Okay, so that was just to reiterate care, um, root causes behind terrorism, I guess, and uh, the reduced sentence incentives and U.S. uniqueness and, uh, and, and uh, the idea of isolation units as well. So good luck, guys. <laughs> so to the first issue, it is, it, it is certainly a problem and a complication when you talk about launching anything CVE-related. You're always going to have your protesters. You take money from U.S. government for CVE. They're going to be protesting outside. It has, you know, no CVE is a trending hashtag. The problem is, is that the people that facilitate that are a very low number of individuals with an incredible amount of power because they present themselves as if they represent the voice of American Muslims in general, and they don't. 
overwhelming majority, I think more than 50% of American Muslims would be considered unmasked Muslims at this point, largely for the reasons that you point to, that some of the organizations that present themselves as controlling the narrative present it as if the narrative that they present is the narrative espoused by everybody in their mosques. That's not true. It's one of the things that we would like to work on as we build this out is actually pushing back against the people that push back against CVE, because if you talk to the academics that they quote in their reports, they'll all tell you in private, they absolutely misquoted me. I don't say anything about that. And I endorse CVE. So the problem is, is that in an age of the hashtag shut it down movement, you can get public acting in a very frenzied way through the voice of some hubs in a network that are just disproportionately unrepresentative of what the real public opinion on the ground is in the mosque and out of the mosque. Complicated scenario, but one. At least on this issue, you know, we can frame this because we're dealing with individuals have already been convicted for a terrorism-related offense, you frankly can frame this as a counterterrorism issue, not even a CVE issue. Counterterrorism in the sense that we don't want someone to be a recidivist back to terrorism. So, you know, it may be a little bit of dealing with nomenclature and, and, and you know, for those, but if that's a little bit of a, you know, sort of some chaff you have to get past. Um, but, you know, those, those groups aren't being helpful. Uh, you know, in, in this discussion by simply being in opposition based on the terminology of CVE. And with, yeah, we had root causes and the, uh, the uniqueness of U.S. and reduced sentencing. I mean, the root cause issue that you asked about, sir, it's understandable the context uh, in which all of uh, terrorist behavior occurs is so complex. Uh, it's impossible to say it's because of X, Y, or Z. It's so multivariable that it's complicated. Um, I think that we are recognizing a need that each of us in American society today has a role and a responsibility to play in combating not just terrorism and extremism, but also just the hate and the polarization on both sides of the aisle that is rendering uh, the efficiency and the effectiveness of our democracies inoperable. And so these are, this is a complicated scenario you mentioned. It's been with us from the beginning of history, and hopefully we can make progress in addressing it. But we're in a much better state than we once were, and we're, there are some positive things to look at that are addressing those root causes that surface the grievances that are manipulated by extremists. With regard to your question, very quickly, I mean, the United States definitely has longer sentencing durations. It definitely has a unique legal system um, with regard to, for example, the sentencing guidelines that establish where a person should fall along a line in a continuum of sentencing in a minimum and a maximum ratio that judges are not bound by adhering to, but typically do. But that's why when you develop out programming and create it as an option, you have to look at the incentives. The incentive for gang members that involve themselves in the Otisville prison is oftentimes just to get off of a compound that is incredibly dangerous, where like 15% of the people that stay there for more than two years end up stabbed or fatally wounded. That, for a young kid who made a mistake and is convicted of a violence-related crime, which bumps up his score for housing so he's at a maximum security prison, getting him in a medium-level compound can be incentive enough right? Little, little incentives like that don't necessarily have to involve a time reduction. Although I think it's safe to say that with the empirical evidence that backs the effectiveness of the residential drug and alcohol treatment program and with a, uh, an ability to look at the age and onset and the fact that when people typically turn 27, their vulnerability, their maturity enhances to the point where they're less prone to recidivate and commit crimes of violence, I think that there should be some incentive-based structure that could be arranged upon sentencing for an individual that takes responsibility for his actions and is interested in changing his, once he recognizes or she recognizes the consequences of their actions.
All right, I think we've got time for, uh, let's just have a final question here, third row, and then we'll wrap it up. Hi, my name is Araya. I'm an intern uh, here at Heritage. Um, so I'm wondering if I could uh, get you to react to something. So I'm looking at, what, when we're talking about extremist ideology, um, I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, help me understand the differences between the logical consequences, the logical actions based on requisite beliefs. So for example, my impression of having grown up in upstate rural New York, being the only Jewish kid in class, um, I've had lots of in, uh, experiences with skinheads, right? So I know what their, what their requisite beliefs are and why they behave the way they do. They see it as, you know, they have an obligation to the white race to stop the Zionist-controlled media, blah, 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 right? So I wanted to ask you, though, about specifically um, Islamic extremism and how it differs from Nazi ideology. Um, it, it doesn't seem that it's some sort of mythological belief about, you know, a tribe or a people. It's if you have this belief that dying in the right circumstances, killing the right people, uh, especially the descendants of pigs and apes, people like myself, which is written in the Quran, which nobody can tell me is not written in the Quran because I can read. Um, that would be a very strong temptation if you were somebody who was searching for meaning, something greater than yourself, rules and structure and so forth. If you had a very vivid picture of what paradise looks can, like. Can I quickly ask you to get to the question, please? How, so the, the picture of paradise and 72 virgins and everything that's promised, how much of a role do you think that plays as opposed to the apologetics of it's just poverty and ignorance and, you know, all these other things that, that I hear? It's, that question is so always avoided. Theology the of materialism, I guess. Yeah, you know, frankly, I think, you know, you can make, there's a, a metaphor, there's a, you know, a comparison to be made. You're talking about these skinheads in upstate New York who say they feel an obligation to their people to protect their people by conducting violence in the name of their people. You know, it's not hard to really substitute and say a Muslim who feels an obligation to protect his co-religionists who are being oppressed in the Middle East, in the West, and therefore they've got a religiously sanctioned obligation to carry out violence in order to do that. That is an interpretation that underpins a lot of Islamist terrorism. Um, so, you know, which is, you know, for many reasons why, you know, we're focusing right now, you know, on the jihadist threat, but there's a pivot point, you know, especially what's going on in the U.S., but, you know, overseas as well, um, that, you know, this rehabilitation for ideological violent extremist defenders will probably be applicable to those, you know, people upstate who you have to deal with who are now going through the prison system. So there's, there are similarities you know, in the way the ideologies mobilize people to action, um, I would say, so. Okay, well, look, uh, I think this is a really fascinating discussion. Uh, the report is called When Terrorists Come Home. You shall read it. It's fantastic. Um, Jesse, Mitch, thank you for coming in. Thank you for your comments. Thank you all for being here. And please, if we could pass on our thanks to Mitch and Jesse. <laughs>